And as we do, uh, we're going to look at a, a prophet and a story that I think you'll relate to. But before we jump into that, let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. Have you ever had something that you absolutely did not want to do, but without a question had to do? You had no desire to do it. But you absolutely knew that you had to do it. So for me, I can think of lots of things that fall under that category. Like my monthly credit card reconciliations at work. I do not like to do them. Taking down the Christmas lights in February. That was the story of 2017. All right? Sending that check next month to the IRS. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to, you know? So if you're my three daughters, I have three girls... Uh, one of the things that they have to do often and they have absolutely no desire to do is take family pictures. Take a look. This is our Easter picture uh, last year. So that's my wife and my three girls and I. Uh, I've got three daughters, an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a five-year-old. And then my wife, Ashley, is there. She's the, the taller one. So they don't like to take family pictures. And their mother initiates family pictures all of the time. But they are always uh, rebelling against them. I actually, we got a better picture than this. But I decided this was the one that was Facebook appropriate. So you could get a real look at the Dane family, right? Like this is behind the scenes. So this morning, as we continue to this story, this series of stories that we tell, I think you're going to find that the story that, that this is about this morning, the guy that this is about, is someone that you can connect with. Because, like us, he knows what it is to have something that he has to do, but he doesn't want to do it. In fact, he had this command from God that he had absolutely no interest in obeying. And I think his story is probably one of the most fascinating, epic stories of the Old Testament of the Bible. This morning we're going to look at Jonah's story. And actually, as we do, I want to ask the question, is this really even Jonah's story? So if you have a Bible, if you would turn with me there now to Jonah... And I would say, good luck finding it. It's just four little chapters there towards the back side of the Old Testament. It's uh, there in the Minor Prophets between Obadiah and Micah. So we're going to look together at Jonah chapter 1. Now as you find Jonah, understand that Jonah only contains 58 verses in its entirety. But in those 58 verses, in those four short chapters, there's a storm, there's conversions, there's miraculous rescue, there's this song of praise, there's repentance of Israel's enemy, there's this honest conversation between God and our reluctant prophet. And as much as there is here about Jonah, these verses from the Old Testament reveal so much to us about God about the nature of God and his relationship to creation. We see in these four chapters God's sovereignty over humans, God's sovereignty over animals and natures. We see even the wind, the wells, and the worms under God's sovereignty. This dramatic narrative covers so much serious subject matter about the reality of who God is and in light of that, who we are. Now, some people don't believe that the story of Jonah is an actual historical event. Some see it as more allegorical than historical. They think it's like a fairy tale with a good moral at the end. But let me just say from the very beginning that I read and believe that Jonah is historical. And I do that for a couple of reasons. First, because elsewhere in the Bible, Jonah is referred to as indeed being a real person. That he was a prophet. And on top of that, Jesus himself talks about Jonah in Matthew 12. He referred to the stories of Jonah and Jonah's big fish and the people of Nineveh as though they were real life events and real people. And since I have no trouble believing in the teachings of Jesus that we saw in John 7 about Moses this morning, 
And since I have no trouble believing in the miracles of Jesus, that he had the power and the ability to perform those, believing in the resurrection of Jesus, then I also believe that this story that Jesus referred to as real is absolutely real. And if you don't, this morning we're just going to have to agree to disagree. But whatever you do, I would encourage you to listen to this story, to Jonah's story, and listen to the lessons that we can learn from it about God and ourselves. Jonah 1, 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittiah. Go to the city, the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. There's a key phrase there in verse 2. He tells Jonah to preach against. Some translations may say there, cry against the great city of Nineveh. And I think those words, preach against and cry against, they really come across as a bit understated because in the Hebrew, which was the original language that this was written in, the words for preach against are kara'al. And that word kara'al gives this picture, this idea of someone standing over or even standing upon someone else and calling them out. Kara'al is the, not the picture of a, a TV preacher, some soft TV preacher that's saying, you know what, in some cheesy voice, shame on you. No, Kara'al is the picture of a cage fighter saying, when I get you in the cage, you're going down. That's the kind of call out that God was calling for. God said to Jonah, you go to Nineveh and you call those bad boys out. How would you like that kind of mission? Like, really? I mean, some of you may be like, yes, sign me up. Not me. I'm not sure that's the kind of mission that I want. And you know what? The reason that God wanted Jonah to do this, the reason that God wanted Jonah to go and and call Nineveh out was because their wickedness had risen so high that God decided it was time to take them out. It was time to bring them down. And so Jonah was the lucky prophet who got the call from God to do it. I mean, you know, some guys, they just, they get all the good assignments, right? I get to preach to you, sweet folks. Jonah got to go cage fight Nineveh, you know? But Jonah didn't want anything to do with Nineveh. He wanted no part of this. So he ran. He ran. Verse three. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. Like, let those words land on you this morning. Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for another city, for the city of Tarshish. Supposed to go to Nineveh, heads to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah ran away from the Lord because he was seeking to flee from the Lord. He wanted to get as much distance between himself and Nineveh as he possibly could. So he ran the other direction. He went the opposite way of what God had called him to do. But he would discover soon that running from God is absolutely futile. And that's a lesson that I think you and I would do well to discover today. Listen, you can run from God, but you cannot outrun God. We can run from the Lord, but we cannot outrun the Lord. And the reality is, if we're honest, I think all of us would admit at some point in time in our lives, we have run from God. And running from God has lots of different, different versions, lots of different varieties. It comes in lots of different shapes and sizes. But the reality is, we understand what it is to have a rebellious heart that runs from the things of God, from the ways of God, from the commands of God, or from the call of God on our lives. And for us... 
as you think about what it was like for you to flee from the Lord, you may think about the why and the what that was behind that. And we don't really get to see Jonah's why just yet. It's not until chapter four that we understand why Jonah was running. But we do see in chapter one what happens as a result of his running. Look at verse four. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. So since these men, since their gods did not exist, then you and I know, of course, that their gods did not answer their pleas for rescue. These guys are literally fighting for their lives. We see that so clearly in verse five. But Jonah, Jonah seems absolutely oblivious to the danger that he has placed the people on this ship in. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots and they fell on Jonah. So they asked Jonah, tell us who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? See, when Jonah got on the boat, he was just like any other foreigner to them. They didn't really pay him all that much attention. Even though when Jonah was boarding the ship, he did say something strange to them about the reason he was getting on the boat. But at this point in the raging storm, in the raging sea, when the lots have been cast and it is pointed to Jonah, the fact that he is the one that is causing these storms, now all eyes are on Jonah. And they recognize that something bigger is going on here. This is not just any normal storm. Jonah answered them, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. He claims that his God is the God of heaven, the God who made the sea, this sea that is raging against them, this sea that is bringing their boat and ultimately their lives down. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew that he was running from the Lord because he told them that already. The sea was getting rougher and rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? What should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? Because you've told us that your God is the God of heaven and earth, that your God has sovereignty over this sea. And yet you're trying to run from and flee from this God? As if he would not know where you're going? What do we do with you so that our lives will go well? He said, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. See, up to this point, Jonah has cared for absolutely no one but himself in this story. But now we see this shift a little bit. And he does have some compassion. He has some concern for the lives of the other people on the ship. And in a way, this is a foreshadowing of what is to come. This is a a foreshadowing of of what Jesus will one one day do when he comes and sacrifices himself willingly. See, the difference here, though, is that the innocent and willing sacrificial servant. And we know very clearly that Jonah is guilty and reluctant to bring the message that God has given him. Jonah's still pretty self-centered at this point because instead of just jumping into the sea, 
and ending the danger that the other people on the ship are going through, he puts the responsibility on the sailors for them to throw him overboard. But these sailors, these men who did not know God, were at first unwilling to sacrifice Jonah for their own good. Verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord. Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. I find it so interesting that that Jonah is sent to preach to Nineveh. And he chooses to go the opposite direction. He's, He's sent by God to send a message to Nineveh from God. And yet his first converts were on a ship that were headed for Tarshish. God will carry out his plans for his glory whether you and I are on board or not. That's the absolute truth this morning. A whole ship's crew came to faith in this story. And Jonah didn't even get to experience the joy of seeing them come to faith in the Lord. Jonah didn't even get to experience their commitments to God and their worship of God. And the reason is when we're running from God, we don't experience much joy in our lives. Jonah was robbed of that joy. But the other truth is that that God doesn't let us go. He may allow you to suffer the the circumstances of bad decisions. He may allow you and I to to struggle with the consequences of our sinful choices and our disobedience. You know, he may even exaggerate those circumstances to get your attention. He may send a storm not to pay you back, but to get you back. And that's what he did for Jonah. And in the midst of Jonah's storm... God sent a most unusual form of transportation to bring him back home. Chapter 1 concludes, But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. That's where chapter 1 of this epic story closes out. Jonah was running from God, and then he's miraculously captured by God. He was fleeing from the Lord, And the Lord sends a big fish to bring him home. But you know, as we go into chapter 2 and 3 and 4, I want you to see this this morning. That this story is not just about Jonah running from God. It's also about why he was running from God. In chapter 2, what we have is this eloquent prayer of Jonah that is recorded. And the very last line of this prayer that Jonah prays from inside the big fish. Jonah declares, salvation comes from the Lord. And this helps us to begin to get a glimpse and understanding of why Jonah ran because what he's admitting at the very conclusion of his prayer is that God knows better, specifically in relation to Nineveh. Salvation comes from the Lord. He's admitting, he's acknowledging that God is sovereign over who will accept his grace. Chapter 2 ends with God commanding 
the big fish to vomit Jonah back onto the land. And, and that's, that's a detail of this story that I just don't ever want to overlook, right? I mean, it's fascinating. He has the fish swallow him, and then he has the fish throw him up back onto the land. And then in chapter 3, Jonah is commanded by God a second time to proclaim God's message to Nineveh. Jonah gets a second chance to do the same thing that he's been running from. This thing that he knows he has to do, but he doesn't want to do. And this time, Jonah obeyed. Jonah went, and he preached. The reluctant prophet went with his message and shared it. And the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and they grieved over their sin. And then their own king called them away from their wickedness and urged them to continue calling on the God of Jonah. You see, the Ninevites repented, and that is perhaps the greatest miracle that we see in this entire story. Even more miraculous than a big fish swallowing a man and throwing him back up is the Ninevites repenting and turning their hearts toward God. They did. And then God forgave them. They turned from their sinfulness and their wickedness that God was fed up with and ready to wipe them out for. And when they turned from it in repentance, God forgave them. He responded with compassion. And he did not bring upon them the destruction that he had planned. And you know what? That is exactly why Jonah had run. That's the reason that Jonah ran from the call of God. Look to chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. We get a little bit of a look at what's going on inside of Jonah's mind. But to Jonah, this, this repenting by Nineveh seemed wrong. You have no idea how violent and how wicked Nineveh is. They're the worst of the worst. They're the enemy of our people. This seems so very wrong that Nineveh would be even given the chance to repent, much less choose to repent. To Jonah, this seemed so very wrong. This compassion by God for this vile and wicked people seemed so wrong. This compassion from God, this relenting from God, this choice by God to not destroy them the way that Jonah expected them to be destroyed, this seemed so very wrong. And Jonah became angry. And he prayed to the Lord. And he had a pity party. He said, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This all seemed very wrong to Jonah. Because all the while, he knew the nature of God. He knows that God is gracious and compassionate. He knows that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. He knows that God relents from sending calamity. Jonah's reluctance and Jonah's rebellion was not necessarily based on fear of the wicked Ninevites. Jonah's reluctance and his protest was not even about racism toward the people that were the archenemy of his people. Jonah's protests was primarily a theological protest. Jonah believed that God was making the wrong move in offering repentance and forgiveness to this wicked people. 
He wanted God to destroy those who were so violently wicked and prosper those who were righteous. See, in Jonah's worldview, this just did not make sense for God to be so generous. Jonah wanted them to get what he believed that they deserved. And the willingness of God to forgive the Ninevites, the willingness of God to give the Ninevites an opportunity at another chance for repentance, for Jonah, this was all just way more than he could stomach. So for 10 years now, I've been serving through short-term missions in the country of Cambodia. I've grown to love the Cambodian people. We've worked with them in sharing the gospel and training and teaching their pastors. We've worked with their orphans and their children. We've worked with them through medical trips. We've worked with them in lots of different ways. And over the course of working with the Cambodian people for 10 years, I've been able to have a, a seat, a front row seat of seeing the effects and the destruction of the Khmer Rouge, who ruled Cambodia from 1975 through 1979. This was totalitarian dictatorship. They absolutely ruled through genocide and means of fear and manipulation. And all of this was done in the name of communism. And Cambodia, all these years later, this was 1979, is still recovering from all of the destruction that they felt through their civil wars and through this totalitarian dictatorship. And there was a man that was very much a part of the Khmer Rouge work. He was a man named Dutch. Dutch is now a, a war criminal, but he was a former leader in the Khmer Rouge movement. Dutch is a Cambodian, and so this is Cambodians killing and manipulating and hurting their own people. And Dutch was on the side of the KR. In fact, his specific job was to work for the, govern the government's internal security branch, and he was the leader of the tool sling torture prison, which was also referred to as S-21. S-21 was formerly a public school that was used to educate Cambodians and prepare them for their future. But the KR wanted to do away with all education because they wanted to send everybody back into the fields into an agrarian society. They were especially targeting the educated in their work. And Dutch was in charge of this public school turned into torture prison. And I've walked through the doors, the walls, the buildings of S21. I've seen the beds where people were strapped down. I've seen the cages where people were held like animals. I've seen all of the awful and unspeakable things that Dutch and his minions did. I've seen the rooms and the cisterns where people were waterboarded and forced to tell lies as if they were truths. It's unspeakable, the wickedness and violence that the Cambodian people experienced at the hand of their own brothers and sisters. And from S21, after people were interrogated, after they were forced to lie, if they were forced to out other people, if they weren't already killed by the torture, then they were shipped over to the killing fields where they would be murdered and placed in mass graves. And I've been to those places too. So Dutch was in charge of all this. He was the captain of that torture prison. And long after the war, 
People spread back into their villages and you wouldn't know if a Cambodian man was KR or, the, or not. Dutch went in and blended back into his village. But before Dutch was found and tried for war crimes, he accepted Christ and was born again. Take a look at this slide. This headline says, Former Khmer Rouge torturer to born again Christian. And that man in the picture, that's Dutch. That's the leader of S21, the torture prison. A line from that article says, The intensity that once turned Dutch into a feared prison chief now transformed him into an evangelical Christian eager to cooperate with the court and to ask for forgiveness. I think about how we won and seeing Cambodia's history has changed my heart. I think about how loving the Cambodian people and working to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them has impacted my life. And then I think about Dutch. And I think, what would I have done if God had called me to go to Dutch and to bring a message of repentance to him? How would I have felt? How would I have responded? What would I have thought? And then I think I begin to understand Jonah. I think I begin to understand what it's like to be Jonah. What it's like to, to have a human concept of justice that says, this man deserves what he has given to others. Right? That was the way that Jonah thought. And I think that you and I can agree that we think like that too. But even more importantly than this helping me to understand Jonah, this helps me to understand our God. Because our God said, go, go to Nineveh. And you call them out. And you bring them this opportunity for repentance. And when they repent... They will experience my compassion. You see, the good news of Jonah is what we see about God's thoughts and God's actions toward the wicked. That's the good news of Jonah, that we see the way that God responds to both the evil-doing Ninevites and also the disobedient prophet of God. In reality, Jonah and Nineveh have a whole lot more in common than Jonah wants to admit. Right? What we see as we begin to understand the compassion of our God in Jonah's story, is that God's compassion is not weakness in his justice. No, it reveals that there is a greater justice better than our human concepts of justice. The compassion of God in Jonah reminds me of the truth of Isaiah 55 that says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I would never think to rescue that man. But God, in his grace and compassion, saw fit to rescue this person. Because his ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And in his sovereignty, we can trust that he is good. See, the story of God and Jonah 
is the declaration of Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Those words sound almost exactly like what Jonah said he knew about God in chapter 4. He says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And that's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh, because I didn't think they deserved your grace. But you saw fit to give it to them. But we can't really look down on Jonah, church. Because after all, there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. We can all relate to Jonah. And you know what? More importantly, we can't look down on Jonah because Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 12 that Jonah is a foreshadowing. Matthew 12, Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the, man, so the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here, and that something is a someone. It's Jesus himself who was speaking these words in Matthew 12. He is the one who is greater than Jonah. Because you see, Jonah was the reluctant prophet that did not want to do what he had to do. Jesus brought prophecy as the word of God made flesh who willingly sacrificed himself so that the gospel of God, the grace of God, and the forgiveness that comes from it might be known. So what do we do with all of this? I think we do what 1 John 3.16 commands us. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He wasn't reluctant. He didn't run. He was the willing, sacrificial servant who himself acknowledged that he had the ability, he had the power, and he had the control to not go to the cross if he did not want to. He chose the cross so that we could experience the gospel of peace. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 1 John 3.16. So what do we do with this? Well, let's ask God. Let's ask God that if we have any lack of compassion in us for broken and lost people, that he would eradicate our own selfishness and self-righteousness. Let's do that this morning. What do we do with this? Let's repent Let's repent ourselves if our own comfort has been elevated above God's love for the unloving. As the people of God, let's choose to be known more for what we are for than what we are against. Let's love loud in our community and share with them that we are for grace, that we are for mercy, that we are for love, these things that our God is for. Let's recognize with absolute humility that we are Jonah and that we are Nineveh in light of a holy God. Let's dedicate our hearts to God's mission in our world, to God's mission in our community, and to the truths of God's word. What do we do with this? 
let's be encouraged that God's power is greater than any person's sins. If the Ninevites could repent, then anybody could. Think about someone that you just can't imagine them responding to God's grace with repentance. This gives us so much hope. This makes our hearts so tender. This helps us to see that the compassionate heart of God is what the Holy Spirit is growing up inside of us. So what do we do with this? Let's worship God for his absolute incomparable mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these truths. I thank you that they are a reflection of your goodness, of your grace, of your heart of love and mercy. And I pray, God, that you would help our lives to be a reflection of those things, that our lives would mirror that. God, we recognize that we are so much like Jonah and so much like Nineveh that we absolutely understand our own imperfection, our own depravity, and our absolute need for Jesus Christ. And because of that, we pray, God, that in humility, you would move us beyond ourselves, beyond our selfishness and beyond our comfort into the community and into the world that we may be a representation of the gospel of Jesus in the way that we love, in the way that we speak, in the way that we serve, in the way that we proclaim your gospel. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would empower us, that you would fill us with so much joy and peace that we would overflow by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that we would not be reluctant to share. But we would be so eager to share with others about the rescue that we have experienced and received and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your generosity. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that we have experienced your compassion. And now, God, we sing hearts filled with worship because we know what it is to trust in the love and the gospel of Jesus. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.